My intention is, and it may not happen. I tempt when I teach through the book of Genesis to do a chapter, a sermon. I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, And uh, we're going to look at chapter 15. You'll notice the title is A Covenant That Changes Everything. The way you look at the world, the way you look at the news, the way you look at the church, the way you look at the countries of this world, and the way you look at the future are all hinging on what we're going to see this morning. It's not the only place that it's mentioned in the Bible, but this is called the Abrahamic Covenant because it is something that God chose to do, and you're going to find out that Abraham didn't have a thing to do with it. God did it on its own. It's unilateral. It is unconditional. It has has not changed, will not change. And I will tell you, it is a filter by which I watch the news every time the news comes on, especially if the news has to do with the Middle East. If you don't understand that by the, why I say that by the end of this sermon, that means you've been sleeping. That's the only thing I can tell you, and I don't think I'm all that good as a preacher. So, but let me start with this. What God says, He does. No ifs, ands, or buts. What He says, He does. What God promises to do, He provides for. What He starts, He finishes. There are a lot of people that think that God quit in the middle. They're dead wrong. We'll get to that at the end of the sermon. But to get us in that direction, God doesn't start something and then bobble it up in the middle and just throw it away. He begins, and when he begins, he finishes it. As we pick up this morning, you will find that we are seeing Abraham. God is coming to him. In a vision. That's why I appreciate what Dave and Marie were playing for us. Be thou thy vision. The vision in this case is God coming to Abraham. And if you'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 15 of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear Abraham. After what things? Abraham had just gone out with his own trained soldiers and his allies and had defeated five kings and brought back his nephew Lot and everything that belonged to him and brought them back safely. And God says to him, Abraham, don't fear. I'm not sure what all that means. It might be Abraham, don't fear retaliation because that's what... uh, happens when you go defeat somebody, they look for a way to get back at you. But I believe it's more than that, because the context that continues on says, Abraham doesn't have a son to leave all of this to. So what do I do? Abraham was, I believe, a little upset, because God had made already some great promises to him. Remember chapter 12, the first several verses. Uh, and uh, he had no one to leave it to. In fact, is God goes on to say, Abraham, I am a shield to you. It's interesting. That word shield is the word that's translated hedge in the book of Job. Remember, Satan was really uptight at God and you know, kind of blasting God. God, you put a hedge around Job and nothing bad is allowed to happen to him. So, of course, he worships you. That's the same word. It's also used of a crocodile or an alligator's skin. 
which is very tough and impenetrable by most normal means. God says, Abraham, I'm like a shield, a thick hide over top of you. What I say is going to go. It can't be thwarted. But he goes on to say, and your reward shall be very great. That's where the child comes in. That's where the descendants come in. Because verse 2 goes on to say this. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, God, you promised these things. And Abraham is already trusting him, as we well know. But he goes, God, this doesn't make sense. I think that's where the fear part probably comes in. Not quite sure at this point. I don't have anybody to pass it on to, so what good does it do me? I don't have any. And and by the way, the the person that is next in line is my chief servant, Eliezer. I could pass it on to him, but you promised seed from me, descendants from me. So what do I do, God? You know, what am I supposed to think? God doesn't have a problem with us asking questions. Questioning God is a different story. That's disrespectful and irreverent toward God. God has no problem answering your questions. And he had no problems with with Abraham either. And he goes on, uh, Abraham goes on and, and said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, born in my house is the heir. I'm sorry. Let me start over again. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. The culture of the day was that your number one servant, your confidential servant, the one that you would entrust your earnings to, your accounting to, would be the one that would inherit those things. The New Testament would call that person a steward. Someone entrusted to use the master's resources for the master's profit. He would be the one. And God had made it clear in the past, and he's going to make it clear again. That is not the person that it's going to be handed down to. Verse 4 goes on to say, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your error, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir." Now, I'm going to put a word in there and a concept in there that is kind of insinuated but not direct. This guy who is a nobody is not going to be the one. That wasn't that he was not a nobody. He was a trusted servant. But he was not the son of promise. We're going to see that in a few chapters, that Abraham has another son. That is going to be given some blessings. But he is also not the son of promise. Eliezer doesn't fit the bill. You see, what God says he will do, he carries out. What he wants done, he provides for. Not many of you will remember this because you weren't around, but 27 years ago when I started here, I had fear in the back of my mind for a lot of things. One of the things that I had always been convinced of long before I was a pastor, that God's work needs to be done by God's people God's way. And that Sorry if some of you like this, you just have to put up with it. But uh, you know what? I just have a aversion a, a to churches doing soup sales and sub sales and you name whatever to meet their budget. 
And I started seeing this, and I'm like, oh, man, I definitely don't want to deal with this. i got to deal with it in a sermon. And all I said was this. I said what I just said, and I said, you know what? We don't want the people of our community thinking that our God cannot supply the needs of this local assembly, and we have to kind of go begging to them and asking them to support us. In fact is, it should be exactly the opposite. We should show the greatness of our God by reaching back into the community and helping the community. We ought to be the ones that are the spark plug to help them. I'll tell you what, when I was done with that sermon, I was wrung out, and I thought, boy, am I going to hear this. And I remember Bob Brion is still here, and his wife was one of them, because the ladies used to get put all the work for those soup and sub sales. They came up to me, and Dottie was one of them. She came up, thank you so much. We are so tired of doing that. We don't want to do it anymore. And I never got a negative backlash from the whole thing. But here's the point. What God starts, he finishes. What he promises, he will provide for. And that's what he told Abraham from the very beginning. If I said I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I started it, I'll finish it. That's our God. If he promises that your salvation is safe and secure, it's safe and secure. If he promises the word of God does not return to him void, it is true. It doesn't matter what it is. If God starts it, he finishes it. He means what he says and says what he means. That's the God we serve. And he made that very clear to Abraham. We don't have to live in fear and doubt and all the other things that the world brings our direction. Verse 5 continues on. He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Remember, him and Sarah can't have any children. Wow. That's a tough place to be, right? You have no children and God is saying, hey, look up at the night sky. See the stars. See if you can count them. I did a little research. By the way, the research I did said the universe is uh, 13.6 billion years old. Uh, First of all, I had to strike that out right then and there. You're not going to, by the way, I don't believe that. So don't, don't go out of here and believe. I don't believe that for a second. But that's what it said. But you know what? They have powerful telescopes. So I wanted to see what they thought. So this is what I thought. I don't, I don't know how many stars there are. And besides, my mathematical ability stops at 20. You know why? Because that's all the money my wife will ever let me have. 20 bucks, that's it. I'm done. So up to 20, I'm good. After that, forget it. But he said, Abraham, look at the stars. Look at the stars. See all them? Count them if you can. That's how many descendants will be. The bottom line here is that he's saying to Abraham, you'll never be able to count all the descendants that will come from you. Even though you have no children at this moment, it will happen. Here's what I found. According to astronomers, there are 100 billion galaxies. A galaxy is not a star, it's a combination of stars. For example, the Milky Way, the galaxy we live in, has 300 billion stars. And if you put all the whole thing that everybody knows about, and there's probably way more than this yet, we just simply don't know. And I was going to put this on a slide, but I couldn't have put it on a slide, so you're going to have to deal with it the way I do. They estimate that there are 70 billion trillion stars. Now, like I told you, my math stops real short, 
but it's seven times and then followed by 1,022 zeros. That is more than I could put on a couple of slides. I don't know how many slides that would take. But it's way, 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 way more than anybody could count. But if you look up on just a clear night, you could see more stars than you can ever count that night. That's what he's saying to Abraham. Doesn't matter how many exactly there are. It's just an innumerable amount of people were going to come from him. And notice the next verse. It's probably one of the most famous verses from the Old Testament. And Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. You go, hold it a second. We paid attention at your past sermons. Because you said back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham believed. When he was in the Chaldees and he went out from that country to a land that he didn't know and, and all of those things. And Abraham was already a believer. And by the way, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament verifies that, backs that up. So what's it talking about here? Well, this is why when you uh, have an intern, you get an intern that is smarter than you, has more education than you, and takes Hebrew and you never have, okay? Peter and I, over one word, how long was that, an hour conversation? An hour and a half conversation, okay, about what does this one word believe mean? Now, I'm not that smart as Peter is, and I don't have the education he does, so I'm going to make it for most of us. Simply this, it is saying it's a state of mind that considers the object reliable and dependable. It shows the way it's written in Hebrew. It didn't start here, but it verifies what has already happened and continues it on. If you don't hear anything else in this sermon and take it away, this is my main point this morning. Just because you got saved 50, 40, 30 20 years ago, two weeks ago, doesn't mean, okay, I have faith, I am not going to hell anymore, I'm going to heaven, I have a new life, my sins are forgiven. That's wonderful. But faith is never just a, like this. It's supposed to be a growing, deepening, strengthening kind of thing. And as you follow Abraham, you will find that Abraham didn't believe just one time. By the way, that's all it takes to get saved. I'm not saying other than that. But our faith should grow. And Abraham now has faith for something more. Because God's been more specific. And Abraham believes him again. Just building upon what was. In the New Testament, this verse is quoted three times. And it's used several different ways in those three times. One of the times in Romans, it's the opposite of Abraham wasn't saved by works. He was saved by faith. Okay, that's where it's quoted. And then in Galatians chapter 3, it's like it didn't come by works of the law, but hearing by faith. And then... We also find it in James chapter 2. It says, oh, and by the way, Abraham believed God, and this was works. Because it's talking about chapter 22 of of Genesis, where he is offering Isaac. You see, each one of them is one aspect. In fact, James is very clear. Faith without works is dead. You know, don't just tell me, I believed, and then you act like, you always did before. Something's drastically wrong. 
And it would have been drastically wrong with Abraham if when God came back and said, you've already trusted me. Abraham was a believer. There's no doubt about it. He was already called the friend of God and all those kinds of things. But now God says, okay, I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to show you a few more things. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, credited to his account. And then when he offers Isaac, the New Testament says it was credited to his account. See, he has a growing, expanding faith. All of us should never say, I believed and now I'm okay and I don't need to do anything more. See, if you're going to grow spiritually, you're going to grow as a Christian, your faith will have to expand. You will have to believe God in deeper, more intimate ways than you ever did before. Things you never even thought of yet. Tomorrow, next week, or a few years from now, God will say, by the way, I want you to do this. Are you going to believe Him then? That's what Abraham did. I like this whole thing. As I was studying this, it's like, wow, no wonder Abraham is the one who God uses over and over again in the New Testament as an example of faith. Because he was one that started back when he was a moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, And then step by step we find him growing and becoming stronger into the person that we look to as the father of faith, if you will. That's what we need to see in this whole thing. So don't be complacent. Don't just sit there and say, well, I believed I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? It is. But it's not the whole ball of wax. It needs to increase and grow if you're going to be one who is really living to glorify God. But that is the people. Now, there's a land that goes with that covenant. It says in verse 15, He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldees, to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So Abraham asked him a question again. Notice, God never gets angry at him. Never, ever gets angry. He has no problem answering legitimate questions. No problem answering. I mean, asking God questions. Because guess what? He knows all the answers. My wife's not here, but... Sometimes I get so irritated at my wife because she asks questions that she knows I don't have the answer to. There's no way I could know the answer to. But she asks them anyway. And I'm like, why does she do that? But you know what? If I was God, it wouldn't be a problem. But I'm not God. I don't read people's minds. I don't know everything. But God does. Isn't that great? You can't fool God. You can't ask him a question he can't answer. That's great. It's all about trusting Him, knowing we can rely on Him. Remember what He promises He provides for? You know what? He promised He would let us know what we need. And He does that. And so, verse 9, He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them, and, they, and Abraham cut them in half. And I'm just going to use the center aisle here as an illustration. This has nothing to do with you. You're not a bunch of cut-up animals. But this is what happens. And by the way, if you're going to have a young heifer and, and goats and that, that's a very expensive offering. Turtle dove and a, and a pigeon, you can go catch one of those. 
We used to do that when we were kids. We'd catch them in the barn, sell them for 50 cents down at Roots Market. You know, I don't know how, if the price of gas today wouldn't even pay to get halfway there. But we would do those kinds of things. So you, anybody could get those. But a heifer, that's a very expensive kind of offering. And in this case, it's not an offering because it's not offered on an altar. It's not burned. It's not, the blood is not sprinkled. This is to ratify a covenant. And so what Abraham does, he slaughters, butchers the animals, puts half here, half here, goes back through. And at the end, there's a turtle dove. We call them a morning dove today and a pigeon on the other side. Now, normally what you would do to ratify a covenant between two people in those days, the two people would walk side by side right down the aisle. And that was a symbol that we are in this together. It's ratified. It's done. It's finished what it is. That's what they would do. But you're going to find something different happens. So Abraham has done that. Now he's done, and now the vultures come. The birds of, of prey come, and they want to sit on the carcasses, and you know they want to eat them up. He chases them away. Now look at verse 12. If you haven't been paying attention, you need to look at verse 12. Because this covenant cannot be ratified by Abraham. Look what it says. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. I'm not sure what the last part means, but I think here's what it is. He fell into a totally deep sleep, and he had a lot of nightmares. That's all I can tell you. That is not spiritual, and it is my best guess. That's all I know, because I know nothing else about that. But Abraham is asleep. Sometimes I take a nap and I'll wake up uh, half an hour later and I'll say to my wife, I was dead to the world because it just like I conked out and just, just crashed. I think that's exactly what happened here. Abraham is dead to the world. Now notice, the ratification animals, the split is there. By the way, when we say that I cut a deal with someone, guess where it comes from? This. Because they're making a deal. In this case, it's a covenant. And they cut it. They divide it. It's where it comes from. So you're, you're saying, we cut a deal, and that, that's, that's a done deal. Because it comes from this kind of a thing. It also goes on to say that while Abraham is asleep, here, uh, some of these other things happen. But Abraham, uh, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and in, oppressed 400 years. There are those that uh, today would say there are contradictions in the Bible. This would be one if you wanted to fight about it. You could do that. You'd be wrong, but you could fight about it. Because I know from other places in the Old Testament, for example, Exodus chapter 21, it says they came out of Egypt in 400 years to the very day. Uh, you don't get much more specific than that. But there it said 400. Other places it says 430. One other place it says approximately about 450 years. You go, see, contradictions in the Bible. Not a chance. Because if you look at the context, and that's not my purpose this morning, so I'm not going to go into it. But if you look at the context, each one of them includes, includes or excludes certain things of when they started and when it ended. 
Some of them ended with the giving of the Ten Commandments. Some of them started when Jacob came down into uh, Egypt. All kinds of different things. You've got to look at the context to know. And that's why there are differences there. One of them is very clear about. So that, there's no problem. That was a round number. Uh, and God is very clear. But the other one is not doubtful at all. It's not a round number. It says to the very day. So you look at it. But here's the point. God is saying that the fulfillment of this promise, the land that I'm going to give, is a done deal. But don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or today. There is a history that needs to continue on before it comes to fruition. In fact, is he says in verse 14, he says, the nation that is in the promised land, um, you're going to come out and you're going to have possess it. You're going to have possessions. Uh, remember, they plundered the Egyptians when they left. I don't understand all of that, but my surmising is this. They were so tore up and so riled up by all of the plagues that had come on, they were just willing to give them anything just to get them out of Egypt. I think that's what happened. That's my personal opinion. I uh, can't prove that one, but that's what it looks like. And he goes on to say uh, to him in verse 15, Abraham, just know this, you'll die in peace. And afterwards, uh, they're going to come out, you'll be buried at a good old age. So Abraham, a lot of this stuff isn't even going to happen in your lifetime. Verse 16 goes on to say, Then in the fourth generation they will return here, that's the promised land, what we call Israel today, Palestine, all that, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. I don't know how many times you've heard this or heard this insinuated, I can't believe the God of the Old Testament is such a bloody, vengeful, spiteful God. He told those people to go into the promised land and kill everything that believes. Men, women, children, cattle, kill everything. I can't believe I would. There is no way I could worship a God like that. Here is the genesis of why that was true. Because the Amorites were totally pagan, totally thumbing their nose at God, totally living irreverent irreverent lives and totally disrespecting God. And God said, when the sins of the Amorites are full, I'm going to judge them. And guess who I'm going to use to judge them? I'm going to use Abraham's descendants. It's simply God judging. Oh, and by the way, if you think it only goes one way, you would be wrong. Because I've studied First and second, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and I found out that when Israel refused to put away their idols and they kept going back to worship their idols, God said, "Okay, I've had it with you." And He brought the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, in and took them right out of their land and judged them. You know what? God is bigger than our little line of history. He's much bigger, and he has a bigger plan. Sometimes he reveals it. Here he does. He says, you know what? The Amorites, I'm going to judge them. Their iniquity is not yet complete. And when you go in, you're, going to, you're supposed to wipe them out. And Israel got in big trouble because they didn't wipe them out. Caused them grief from then on because they didn't do what God asked them to do. Now look at verse 17. It came about when the sun had set 
that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. God made a covenant. Normally in a covenant, two people walk down that deal that they've cut, that covenant they've cut. Not in this case. Abraham's asleep. He cannot even function at this moment. And God goes between them. The New Testament says it this way in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God said, this is what I'm going to do, and Abraham doesn't, Abraham's performance has nothing to do with what's going to happen. Because God said, I'm doing this on my own. I'm ratifying it by myself. On behalf of me and behalf of Abraham. God is the one. It's, that's why, uh, the one that ratifies it by himself. That's why it's unilateral. God did it himself. And it's unconditional. It doesn't have to do with whether the Jewish people are obedient or disobedient. They've been mostly disobedient. A few times they've been obedient. Today they're still mostly disobedient. Verse 18 says this, and notice this. Just in case you think, ah, you're stretching that a little bit. Look at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes on to say, and these are the lands of the people that are occupying that land that I have given to you. Now, Notice it's the Lord making a covenant. This is not a normal covenant because there would have been two people in there. In this case, it's just the Lord himself. Think of it this way, if you will. What do you have in the work between Jesus Christ and God the Father on your behalf when he was dying on the cross? What did you contribute? Nothing. How much payment did you give? Nothing. How much could you if you wanted to? Nothing. Because when God does something, he doesn't include you and I. does it on our behalf, but you know what? If we were part of that, if we were mixed in there, guess what? It's a mess. Any, maybe I shouldn't do this. Anybody ever in their life not made a mess of something? Now, thank you for being honest or keeping your hand down because that would make me look bad. But, but no, all of us mess things up. We do. Our best try still comes way short of perfection. So God says, I could swear by nobody else, so I swear by myself. He said, when he's talking about the descendants of Abraham, when he's talking about the land, it has nothing to do with me, you, Israel, Abraham, or no one else. When it's our salvation, same thing. You can be secure in your salvation. If you've trusted Christ, you can be secure in it. Why? Because you didn't contribute a thing. If you had, it is bogus, it's going to fail. But we didn't. He shed his blood totally, paying the price of sin. We didn't contribute a thing. To finish this off, I have a few slides. Because notice what it says. I've made this covenant, and I give you a land. Now, just to refresh your memory from the past, 
Abraham started here, Ur of the Chaldees, kind of went up, followed the Euphrates River, and that red line is basically the Euphrates River, to Haran. Then from Haran, after his father died, he came down to the Promised Land. Then remember, he eventually landed up in Egypt and then went back again. Okay? So, and, and this is what a lot of people say, well, this is the Promised Land. I'm going to agree, that's part of the Promised Land. But when you start looking at what the Bible just said, and this is the clearest one. There are other places where it says the boundary is the Western Sea, the Great Sea. That's the Mediterranean. There's no doubt about that. All of them, uh, many places say it's the Euphrates River. But this one says it's also the River of Egypt. And I will tell you there are those that say, oh, it's not the Nile River. It's this little dry wash that goes across here that sometimes has water in it. Seriously, people that are serious about it have said those things. Listen, when you put the Euphrates River in here, and by the way, a lot of other things here, but when you put the Euphrates River and then you say the river in Egypt, which is the little creek that every now and then has some water in it, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But there's much greater reason for understanding very differently than that. Today, this gives you a map of the the nations of the world uh, in the Middle East. And if you notice between, and it said there, the river in Egypt, which is the Nile, that's right there, and the Euphrates, which is over here, and of course, the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at this and you take the Bible for exactly what it says, you will see the news differently. Because the news presents Israel as occupiers in various places. Israel has never, even under David and Solomon, has never occupied all of that. It will happen. That's why I almost called uh, this sermon future history. Because it's saying there is a time when Israel will at least this. But there's something else. Because that looks, if you look at that, it's part of Saudi Arabia. It's part of Jordan. It's part of Egypt. Part of Syria, part of Turkey, Lebanon, all of those, Kuwait even uh, fits in there. The point is, it also says that they are going to, he is going to have the land of the Hittites and, and uh, you know, the Amorites and the Kenites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites. Well, anyway, all the Zites you can think of, they are all thrown there. Just read them for yourself. But notice, the Hittites, this is the, this is the Mediterranean Sea. The Hittites are the whole way up in here. This is Turkey. The Hittites were a whole way down. So when you look at it, you realize that the Kenites are way down past that little wadi, that little creek. It's way down past that. The Nile is over here, and the Euphrates is here. The nations that it talks about are all in this area. It's a huge area compared to anything Israel has ever uh, occupied. Today, Israel occupies about this much, right there. About the size of New Jersey, and nobody goes, oh, New Jersey, great big state. Sorry if you come from there, but that's just the way it is. It, it fits. There are others that believe exactly what I just said, but instead of drawing a line across here to the, uh, the Euphrates, they say, well, all the land in between those two parallel lines, which would mean all of Saudi Arabia, uh, Yemen, and the other countries in there. I'm not sure that that's true or not. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I know every minute answer. All I know is it's much bigger than most people would ever say. In 1920, 
and the British mandate to give a land for the Jewish people after World War I, even that did not include all of the things that the Bible says. Now, unfortunately, uh, the United Kingdom landed up giving most of this to Jordan and to other Arab countries and just a little sliver to Israel. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole mess. You want to find some interesting history, go back and read that. I've done it. I don't want to bore you with it. The point is, Israel, and a whole lot more, is what God promised to the descendants of Abraham. And it will happen. But it won't happen. Remember the, remember the verse in the Bible that says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Remember that verse? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about when the king, the descendant of David, is going to rule and reign on David's throne from Jerusalem. It's during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And during that time, they won't need walls and they won't need tanks because it'll be a time when God absolutely fulfills all the promises that he made to Israel. See, God doesn't start something quit in the middle. You as the church are just one little bleep in God's full program. I do not teach, nor do I believe the Bible teaches replacement theology. If you don't know what that is, it's simply the church has replaced Israel. Nope. We are a side issue. Seriously, we're a side issue for a couple thousand years. But Israel has always been God's chosen people. The land has always been His land. It's always been ratified, deeded over to Abraham and his descendants. God doesn't change a covenant that he made by himself. He is faithful. He starts it. He finishes it. That's how I started my sermon. If he promises it, he provides for it. He never said it's going to be tomorrow. In fact, as he even told Abraham, it's going to be at minimum of 400 years. So Abraham knew that from the very beginning. It's going to be at least 400 years before this happens. Of course, we know it's a lot longer than that. And uh, he never promised it would be before. He just said, at least that. The point is this. We don't always see the whole process. But God absolutely finishes what he starts. He started with Israel. He said, they're my chosen people. They're apple of my eye. I'm giving them this land. And until that's fulfilled... God would be a liar if he didn't fulfill it. Now, I'm not going to tell you you have to draw the boundary line exact. I, I can't do that. I tried. I, I, I just can't do that. But I know one thing. What I put up there represents something very close. And Israel has never, ever occupied all of that. And they have never dwelled in unwalled city, unprotected cities, as God says in the Old Testament, they will. There's a time when Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. That's the peace of Jerusalem. There is no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace is ruling on the throne. There's no other way to get around it. But here's the lesson for us. is If God has promised us something, we can depend on it. If He has given us salvation, it's final. It's real. And He doesn't bail out. Oh, we can be horrible in between. He won't let us go. But it doesn't get rid of what he's promised. We can live in faith, in security. And as Abraham, we need to grow and become deeper and stronger in our faith. 
That's the challenge for all of us when we look back at Abraham and realize that he is what I would call the father of faith because he's brought up over and over again in the New Testament as the example of one who lived by faith. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, I I know there are people in this congregation who are going through very difficult, hard things right now. It really gets hard to to trust God, to to know what's going on and uh, to realize he's still in control. But Father, you promised what you started, you would finish. What you promised, you would provide for. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here knowing that, believing that, and practicing that. Lord, help us to never doubt God. Help us to ask the questions because he'll give us the answers in the word. And then, Lord, help us just to live to the fullest, to be examples of those who trust God and who are growing spiritually, growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. We thank you for that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.